So I read Revelation 11:15 again uh, because I think that's a very key text that, that shows us that basically, fundamentally, there are two kingdoms. There is the, what theologians historically call the common kingdom, and then there is the kingdom of Christ. And what we see in, in Revelation 11:15 is that at the end of all things, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. At this moment in history, that hasn't happened yet. So we have two kingdoms. We have a common kingdom and we have the kingdom of Christ. And we've been studying the relationship between the governance of Old Covenant Israel and God's design and intention for the governance of the modern nation-state as a subset of our larger series looking at the Old Covenant more generally and, and what we can learn from the Old Covenant and what its applicability is to us as believers under the New Covenant. We've been studying this for several weeks now. And we have seen so far what is the case if the government that we find ourselves under here, the government of Barbados, or if you live elsewhere, the government of China or Canada or North Korea or Australia or whatever, we have seen what is the case if the government is ungodly and pagan. And I preached at length about this, so you can go back and listen to the sermons at length for a, a more thorough walkthrough of why this is the case. But even if a government is ungodly and pagan, they retain legitimate authority over their own constituency, and they ought to be obeyed in, in civil matters unless they require sin of omission or sin of commission. So for example, Daniel in Babylon was to continue praying to God, even when praying to God was forbidden. To fail to do so would be to omit a duty that God required of him. And his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were to refuse to bow when they were required to bow before an idolatrous statue. But in their vocations as civil servants to the godless Babylonian Empire, they were to be obedient within the civil hierarchy in which they operated. And Daniel especially did such a great job of this that he rose to prominence within the ungodly pagan government. So, this is all review. What if a government is ungodly and pagan? They still retain a legitimate authority. They are still a legitimate government and ought to be obeyed in all things lawful. Again, go back and listen to the last few sermons in this series if, if this uh, flyover is not convincing and you want a more thorough walkthrough. But this is what we've covered so far. What we have not covered yet and what we will investigate tonight is the question, what is the ideal government? Is it ideal if the government is ungodly and pagan? Is it ideal, on the other hand, if the government mandates sound doctrine and godliness in the land. Another way of phrasing 
this question is, by what standard are modern nation-states to govern? And an intuitive answer for many of us in this room might be the Bible. But I believe that is actually not the correct answer. And I will explain that assertion as I go. Here is tonight's main assertion. God expects modern nation-states to govern simply by natural law. This follows from the expectation that Old Testament states, contemporaries of Israel, who did not have special revelation, but had merely general revelation, including natural laws, would nevertheless govern their constituencies for the good of their constituencies. As we saw in Revelation, or not Revelation, Romans chapter 13 and verse 4, the scripture teaches us that there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So all of the various nations around Israel and the authorities in them were from God and instituted by God in spite of the fact that they had no special revelation. They had only general revelation. And our God is not a God like Pharaoh who requires people to make bricks without straw. He would not expect governors to govern by special revelation without giving them special revelation. And so if God legitimized, instituted and legitimized governments in Old Testament times outside Israel who did not have special revelation, then the standard by which he would have expected them to govern was simply by general revelation, including natural law. And so natural law was deemed sufficient for their civic duty as governors, for the civic good, the civil good of their constituents, which Paul tells us in Romans 13 is the duty of civic government. He is God's servant for your good. Romans 13, verse 4. Ah, you say. That may have been the case then, but now nations have special revelation and they ought to be governed by the special revelation they have. So the advent of the printing press, and if we, if we rewind even way further back, Pentecost and the, the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, the Roman roads and so on and so forth, and then eventually through history, the, the missionary movement and the printing press and now the internet and so on and so forth. We can't make the case that nations don't have access to special revelation or, or at least that um, most nations don't have access to special revelation. So perhaps now that special revelation is more accessible, God expects governments to accept receive, submit to, and then enforce all of the special revelation that they have been given. Now, as we have seen, 
Again, by way of review, the failure of a current or prospective government to recognize the Bible as special revelation does not invalidate it as a political entity. So if a nation state says, no, we don't receive the Bible, we do not accept the Bible, it is nevertheless still a legitimate God-instituted government that exists for the civic good of its constituents and ought to be obeyed in all things lawful. That's been established already in our series. Again, go back and listen if you want more at-length argument for that. But the question tonight is, though that is the case, nevertheless, ought they to recognize the Bible as special revelation? And ought they to govern by it? Well, if you're listening carefully and making critical distinctions in your mind, you'll notice that I just asked you two different questions, not one. The first is, ought governments to recognize the Bible as special revelation? And the answer to that first question is, yes, they ought to. As Paul says in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So, Christianity is not just a suggestion, but a command for all people everywhere. Which means it's not just for people in certain spheres of society, but it's people for it's for people in every sphere of society. Which means it is for kings, it is for presidents, it is for prime ministers, it is for those in the church, and it is for those in the state buildings. It includes men and women in positions of civic responsibility. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes the men and women in positions of civic responsibility, even in pagan, secular, ungodly cultures. As Paul says, all people everywhere ought to repent and believe in Jesus. So yes, personally, the men and women in government are, to, are responsible to recognize the Bible as special revelation and to repent and to believe in Jesus as he is revealed to them in the pages of Holy Writ. It's not a legitimate option to do otherwise. If they don't, it doesn't delegitimize their status as governors of the land. But really and truly, they ought to receive the Bible as special revelation and to believe in the Lord Jesus and repent of their sins. As Paul says to King Agrippa in Acts 26, verses 28 and 29, when, when asked, In the short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul answers, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So that's the answer to the first question that I asked you. However, the second question I asked you is whether, therefore, having received the Bible as special revelation and repented and believed, whether these newly converted men and women in the government of the state ought to govern by it. In other words, having, to, having come to recognize that all people everywhere ought to repent and believe the gospel, should the civic government therefore enforce this 
with civic penalties attached to the refusal to do so. Ought governments to mandate that sound doctrine and sound doctrine alone be preached in any religious institution and thereby punish other religions with civic penalties and punish Christian churches which deviate from sound doctrine with civic penalties. Ought governments to make rules in accord with the Word of God as they understand it about what churches ought to do in worship and ought not to do and are not permitted to do in worship. Those are really just ways of elaborating what I mean by should they govern by it. And the answer to these sorts of questions is no. As I stated a few minutes ago, God simply expects modern nation states to govern by natural law, general revelation, for the civic good of their constituencies. And in fact, that is not simply a minimum standard, like at the baseline, that's the least they can do. That actually defines the limits of the state. Which brings us to our next point. For the state to attempt to enforce orthodoxy and orthopraxy beyond what is required for civic good is fraught with all kinds of problems. Let me repeat that. For the state to attempt to enforce orthodoxy and orthopraxy beyond what is required for civic good is fraught with problems. For one, it mistakes how the gospel actually advances. And it results in crusades and the persecution of Baptists and so on and so forth. Listen, we're going we're to convert you infidels at the point of the sword, right? And if you believe wrongly about the exegesis of this section or that section of scripture, you're going to jail, right? It mistakes how Christian maturity First of all, how conversion happens, and then how Christian maturity happens. Actual conversion does not happen at the point of the sword. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So ought everyone, all people everywhere to repent and believe? Yes. Can you use the sword to make that happen? No. Ought people to grow in their understanding of right doctrine and right practice? Yes. Can you enforce that with the sword? No. There is a fundamental mistake here about how it is that everything will be brought under the Lordship of Christ. How it is that Jesus will make real and experiential that there is not one rogue molecule in the universe and every square inch belongs to Him. It will not happen because the state becomes godly and powerful enough to enforce these things. So there's a fundamental, it's, just, it's misguided, first of all. Secondly, it trespasses on the church's jurisdiction. Look, most of the people who would object to what I'm saying right now are also the same people who were crying foul a few months ago 
or over the last couple of years, as the state was trying to tell the church what to do. So, people have a problem with the state telling the church what to do. But if I say that the state shouldn't tell the church what to do, now all of a sudden they're up in arms about it. You see the inconsistency here. The state has authority only over the civic sphere, not over the doctrine and practice of the church. So the church is a civic organization in society. There are stores, restaurants, volunteer organizations, sports teams, churches, all of these things, mosques, synagogues, right? So that we're not just talking about Christianity. All of these things are civic organizations. And the state has authority over the church with respect to its civic participation in society. But the state has no authority to tell the church what its beliefs and what its practices ought to be. Obviously, everything in civic society and, and in terms of religion and everything is under the sovereignty of God. No one disputes that God is overall and that everyone is accountable to God. But when we ask, who has God made responsible for enforcing orthodoxy and orthopraxy in the church? The answer, biblically, is its pastors and elders. Not the state's presidents and prime ministers and kings. And so the state trying to enforce orthodoxy within the borders of its land and trying to enforce orthopraxy in terms of um, what is the right way to practice religion in its land is to trespass on the church's jurisdiction. Thirdly, another problem when the state attempts to enforce orthodoxy and orthopraxy beyond what is required for civic good within its constituency. The third problem is this. It rescinds the provision that God has made for non-Christians to live legitimate, sanctioned, protected lives until the day of judgment. We think about Cain in the beginning, and God made provision for his the sustenance and the maintenance of his life, even after he had killed his brother Abel. Put a mark on him. Telling people that they're going to be answerable to God if they trouble Cain. Then you think about the Noahic covenant and how God promised never to entirely wipe out the population of the earth the way that he did in the flood until the end. And that there would be, as the parable of the weeds puts it in Matthew chapter 13, the wheat and the weeds growing up together until there is one day a great separation of the wheat from the weeds. But the weeds are not to be pulled up right now. They grow together. God's made provision for the weeds to remain in the garden. And then Acts chapter 17, which I already, which I already read, 
Verse 30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So God has made provision for Cain, for the ungodly, to live in this world and to function in this world. He's instituted civic government as a means of maintaining order, to be something of a babysitter until Jesus comes back. And non-Christians may live and work and marry and have children and so on and so forth. And their lives are not, are not illegitimate or delegitimized by virtue of the fact of their unbelief. They are accountable to God. They will give an answer for their unbelief. God has fixed a day upon which all of mankind will be judged. But until then, God has promised to stay in His hand and not to flood the earth again. The wheat and the weeds grow up together. So the, the state is a temporary... Sorry, the state itself is not a temporary measure, but the... Let me go on. It'll become clear what I, what I was going to stop and clarify. Let me stay close to my notes here. The state should stick with enforcing natural law, governing by general revelation for the civic good of its constituents, irrespective of whether they are Christians or not. So murder is out. Deviant sexual ethics also ought to be out. From fornication and adultery to homosexuality and gender dysphoria and pedophilia and all of the divergent, deviant perversions of God's intention for sexuality, all these things also ought to be out. Perhaps and there's room for discussion even within Two Kingdoms theology. Certain religious beliefs also even perhaps ought to be out if they can be argued against from general revelation. Things like parody religions, which defy reason altogether and, sat and satirize religion. Everyone knows there is a God. Certain things about him can be known. So when people make up nonsense religions like worshiping a plate of spaghetti or a unicorn or something, even general revelation tells you that's very nonsense. And the government is not responsible to protect such foolish and impious perversions of true religion. Perhaps also, and again there's room for discussion about this within Two Kingdoms theology, perhaps even polytheistic religions ought to be out because of the metaphysical impossibility of such claims. We don't have time to, to get into all of that tonight, but let me try to make it real simple. There has to be one God as a source of everything else. Otherwise, if there are many gods, there's something sort of behind those gods which would have to be a pre-existent source of those many things. At the end of the day, when you, when you go back and back and back, there has to be one from whom everything comes. But I'm not going to deviate further than that beyond. But anyway, it's possible, and there's room for discussion of it within Two Kingdoms theology, 
They even to a certain extent, there are religious claims which should be out. And of course, religious claims which require harm to others, like child sacrifice, or sati, which was the practice that William Carey found operative in India when he went there many years ago, where they would burn widows, living widows, on the funeral pyre with their deceased husbands. Obviously, things like these are against the civic good. And so again, clearly, uh, when there, when there is a violation of civic good and natural law and general revelation, the government should step in on these sorts of issues. But men should have the right, under, modern, under the government of modern nation states, to practice religion as they see fit under God, within the constraints and nuances I just mentioned to you, without undue governmental interference or constraint. Now all of this follows from the distinction between the common kingdom and the kingdom of Christ, which are roughly equivalent to state and church. However, one day the church and the state will not be different institutions but one and the same. This is what Revelation 11, 15 teaches us. The kingdoms, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now if we go back to the problems that I just enumerated about the state attempting to enforce orthodoxy and orthopraxy beyond what is required for civic good, and we sort of put this lens on that time when Jesus returns and the kingdoms of the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, will it still be a problem that the gospel would it would Jesus make converts at the point of the sword? The answer to that is no. <laughs> Jesus will not mandate repentance and faith at the pain of the sword, but Jesus will gather out of his kingdom all unbelievers. Matthew 13, which is that section on the parable of the wheat and the weeds, it says this, Just as the weeds are gathered and burnt with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will set his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers to throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Next. When Jesus returns and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord, of our Lord and of his Christ, Will it be the state trespassing on the church's jurisdiction for the king to mandate what's up with respect to religious matters? No. Because it'll be Jesus. Jesus, the head of the church, and Jesus, the head of the state, ruling directly and immediately 
over his people. And so, of course, it, is, it will be within Jesus' jurisdiction to bring, to, to rule over every sphere, not just civic, but religious as well. And then the third problem that I presented to you about the state trying to enforce orthodoxy and orthopraxy beyond what is required for civic good in the here and now is that it rescinds the provision that God has made for non-Christians to live legitimate sanctioned lives, protected lives until the day of judgment. When Jesus comes, it is the day of judgment. And so there, there is presently and, and ought to be a separation of church and state. We've heard that phrase before. And this is the way that we get to it biblically as we think about two kingdoms. The common kingdom and the kingdom of Christ. And the way that those are not one and the same thing. And exist distinctly from one another. And how God has made provision for the common kingdom to, to function and to operate. For people to live in that even if they are unbelievers. And for now those two things are not the same. One day they will be. And there will no longer be a separation of church and state. And... When that happens, everything that some of our brothers in Christ want to happen now, will happen then. And there will be no room for religious diversity, and religious plurality, and, and tolerance, and ungodliness, and etc., etc., and all of these things that are, are part and parcel of life in the common kingdom now, they will not be part and parcel of life in the new heavens and new earth under Jesus' rule and reign. We will be perfectly sanctified. We will understand everything perfectly. Orthodoxy will be the rule of the day. Orthopraxy will be the rule of the day. The king will extend his reign into not just the civic aspects of life, but even the spiritual and religious aspects of life right down to the heart. And every single thing will be perfectly under the Lordship of Christ when church and state are the same thing. When there is no longer a separation between church and state. What some argue implicitly now or even explicitly is that that is what we ought to be pursuing ourselves by basically converting the state and getting the state to use the sword to bring this about. What we see biblically is that the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ when the seventh trumpet sounds and when Jesus returns. And until then, we are dual citizens. And so we live in the common kingdom recognizing the limitations of what the common kingdom is, recognizing that God has allowed the common kingdom to exist and given it, in fact, even as a gift to be His servant for the civic good of all people, Christians and non-Christians, until he returns. So it's something like a babysitter, you don't expect a parent at the same quality as the actual parents of the child, but you're basically trying to prevent premature injury and death and make sure things don't descend into bare chaos. The, the common kingdom now is something like that provisional giving of a babysitter until Jesus 
returns to make all things what they actually ought to be. When Christ comes, he will make everything ideal. Until then, the state does its thing, and the church does its thing. They can talk between one another. In fact, the church ought to be speaking to issues that pertain to uh, the civic good and how the state ought to govern. And the church ought to be evangelizing even to members of the government. And so when I say separately and distinctly, I don't mean privately as opposed to publicly. I don't mean that we, that we tell the state that Jesus has no claim over their lives or that they have no accountability to God or responsibility to God in terms of how they govern and so on and so forth. But simply recognizing that they are different institutions and that there are limitations to what the state is even intended to do and ought to do and that there is a real sense in which the state needs to stay in its lane and we ought not to desire for it to encroach upon the jurisdiction of the church. And one day Jesus will come back and two kingdoms theology will be in the history books. It will be, a, it will be something that we will look up with curiosity in 10 billion years as to what did people think about political theology back in those crummy old days before Jesus and all things new? And we'll be like, oh yeah, that's right. Two kingdoms theology. Because when Jesus comes back and the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he reigns forever and ever, there will be no more two kingdoms. Jesus will be over all and in all and through all and everything, right down to every molecule, will actually be in subjection to him. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but then we will see everything in subjection to him. So recognizing this two kingdoms lens as a temporary and provisional institution of God to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow together until the day when they are distinguished from one another and end up in very different places for all of eternity.